This morning's text is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why do you suppose Paul, at the beginning of this text, draws attention to the fact that he's in jail? He's done it uh, once already, twice, I think, beginning of chapter 3 and 3.13. Why, why does he call our attention back to that truth that he's in prison? Why does he say, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy? My answer to that question is, I think it's a way of saying it's worth it. What I'm asking you to do now is worth it. It's worth dying for. It's worth languishing in jail for. To walk worthy of the Lord is worth it. I think that's a way of saying, look where I am. I haven't given up. I haven't quit. I haven't said, oh, I must have blown it. I'm in jail. I believe it with all my heart, right where I am. It's cost me jail, and I believe it. In other words, it's worth it. So it has an emotional, convicting effect of saying to the readers who may sit as comfortably as we do right now, it's worth it no matter when you walk out of here, somebody hits you right in the face because of it. Or if they sliced all the, the tires on your car. Or if they burned your house down because you're a Christian. It's worth it. That's the point of saying, I'm a prisoner while I say these things. I have nothing. I'm a goner in Rome. And he did. He died. That's the effect. And he doesn't want us to miss that effect. He wants us to feel that Christianity is worth it no matter what it costs us. Writing letters from prison is a dangerous thing all through history. That's dangerous business for the church. What it means is that Christianity is not a nice, comfortable means of getting our problems solved and being all comfortable in our middle-class way of life. That Christianity is not a way of fixing up our little problems so that we can be comfortable with the American way. That's not what it's about. Jesus tried so hard again and again and again to warn his disciples what they were getting into if they were real. He said things like, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. They will bring you before kings and governors for my sake. It will be an opportunity for you to bear testimony. It's a very powerful testimony when you bear testimony from prison. We heard about it Wednesday night, many of you. Richard Vermbrand sitting here, 83-year-old man, telling stories about his imprisonment and the imprisonment of others. He told the story in his most recent publication, about Tahir Iqbal, a Muslim convert to Christianity who was put in jail in Lahore, Pakistan in December 7, 1990 and died in prison this past July 19. And when he was asked during that time, he was a paraplegic, confined to a wheelchair incontinent. His life was miserable. When people asked uh, him, what about the possibility of being hanged? He said, quote, I will kiss my rope, 
but I will never deny my faith. Now, when testimonies come out of jail like that, they're powerful. Unless you're just dead, they are powerful. And what they say is, it's worth it. What I'm about to teach you here in these next six verses, Paul says, it's worth it. You can live and die for these verses. Don't read them like the newspaper. They really make a difference. They count. I find people like Richard Vermbrand and the Apostle Paul and Jesus always hitting me in the face like a cold, wakening winter wind startling me out of my drowsy, self-pitying, murmuring style of life. Don't you? It just... Where have I been, you know? Why am I thinking so much about this new car we're, we're going to get, you know? Why am I thinking so much about how the interest rates are down? This would be a neat time to refinance. What, why am I thinking so much about, oh, it's a new Timberwolf season. Why, why do these things hold me emotionally and death doesn't hold me? Christ doesn't hold me. Heaven doesn't hold me. Things that are 10 trillion times more important don't hold me. I mean, if anything testifies to my own remaining sinfulness, it is my vulnerability to be emotionally taken up with a car and not God. I mean, I, it's just incredible to me how my emotions work. I am a... You're not supposed to say this, I know. I am a sinner. I feel like that. I mean, how else can you feel when your emotions are so out of sync with reality? Well, I am glad that Richard Vermbrand was here, and I am glad that he has a publication, and I am glad that the Apostle Paul died for his faith and wrote a few letters before he did, because I need them so badly. I'm an American. I'm almost drowning in luxury. I can barely keep my nose above the water of death in this country, and sometimes I want to leave so bad. But I think, for now, I'm called. He pleads with the church, having said that he's a prisoner, to walk worthy of their calling. Now, specifically what he means is, verse 3, be diligent, brothers and sisters, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you, if you are indifferent towards unity, the unity of the Spirit, you're not walking worthily of your calling to glory. To walk worthily of your calling to glory is to care about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To be diligent to preserve it. Yes, and we, when we hear him say that and we know that he's writing in great suffering and that this must be very important, we're, we should say, yes, Paul, yes, I agree. It's critical. What should I do? How? How do we preserve it? And I think his answer is in verse 2. There are character traits that make you a peacemaker and a unity preserver. If they go like this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Five character traits. If you're humble or lowly, you will be gentle. If you are patient, you will be forbearing. And if you're gentle and forbearing, you'll be a peacemaker. You'll be good at it. And if you do all of that in love, the unity of the Spirit will be preserved. That's the connection, I think, between verse 2 and 3. 
Verse 2 is a means to that great end of unity in verse 3. Now let me pause here and make a warning, give a warning. You know, I've, I've said in the past few weeks, I've called your attention to the way language is used today. Religious language is co-opted by political people to accomplish their agenda. And usually, if, if the moral high ground of certain language is, is stolen, and then the content, the uh, content of either or and right and wrong is removed from it. You can use the language in order to achieve a kind of surface consensus because people like the words as long as you don't bring in the dividing lines of standards that are implied historically in those words. Humble is one of those words. Humility is one of those words. And it can be used against you if you believe the wrong thing. Or if you take the wrong stance, it's a very common word to use. Or it's opposite, arrogance or, or pride. Does Paul mean, for example, that uh, in order to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, you have to be a person who's uncertain about what you believe, wishy-washy in your convictions and iffy in your style of life? because that makes for more unity. Is humility and uncertainty, are those synonyms? Is vagueness the means to unity? It is for a lot of people. A lot of big groups are preserved on the, on the principle of vagueness. Be sure to write your belief statements ambiguous enough so that both sides can affirm them. That's the standard way of preserving unity in many, many groups. Now, is that a mark of humility? Many people today use the word humble to equal be uncertain about the truth. If you act as though you have a firm grip on the truth, you are arrogant. Now, G.K. Chesterton wrote an unforgettable paragraph on this, unforgettable me, I read it in 1968, and I remembered it yesterday. And I went back to my little book, Orthodoxy, and I couldn't find it. I think Karsten has it. But I found another copy in my, in my library that had no markings in it. And I found it in a 250-page book. I found the paragraph. And I want to read it to you. Because he just nailed this issue right on the head in 1944. Here's what he said. What we suffer from today is... Humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition onto the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert. Himself, the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason, close quote. I think that's right. And the reason I think it's right is because as you read on in chapter 4 here in Ephesians, as we saw two weeks ago, what you bump up against is Paul saying, I don't want you to be babes anymore, blown about by every wind of doctrine. Well, there are people today who would say that's the essence of humility. 
They, well, you're right, and you're right, and oh, there's a little bit of truth everywhere. I, I don't have any truth. I, I can't decide for you. I can't declare what's right and wrong. Well, that's it. Oh, you are so humble, humble, humble. And, and we have taken this wonderful virtue off of the organ of ambition. We put it right on the organ of knowledge and conviction and equated it with uncertainty and wishy-washiness in thought. It is not meant to be that way. Grow up. Paul calls that kind of being babyishness. Well, yeah, babies do have a little bit of humility about them. But it is not the kind of humility that Paul is calling for. He says, grow up. Don't be babies that are blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine that comes. Well, what are we growing toward? Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember that from two weeks ago? Unity of knowledge. Maturity is to have a firm grasp on some truth. Not all truth, but some truth. And not be babies. Just flowing this way and that way. The reason humility in verse 2 will yield through those character traits the, the unity of verse 3 is because humility says, I am not the center. The truth is the center. I submit to the truth. You know, it's real subtle here. People who say they don't know any truth, they don't know if there is such a thing as truth, may sound humble, but you know what that does? It frees them to do just what they want to do, and that's proud. It's a real tricky thing here. You've got to grow up and think about these things with maturity. Humility says, I'm not king. God is king. My will is not law. God's word is law. I don't tell God how many faiths are valid. God tells me how many faiths are valid. I don't define the foundation of the unity of the Spirit. God defines the foundation of the unity of the Spirit. That's the voice of humility talking. I submit to objective reality outside of myself. I do not change it. It is not a wax nose that I can just make anything I want and say one day it's this, one day it's that. Oh, aren't I humble? It is there. It is there. It is a given reality. And I submit to it or I rebel against it. And we can call it what we like. And in verses 4 to 6 now, we get the objective reality that is the foundation of the subjective experience of verse 3. So let's read the objective ground of the unity called for in verse 3. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That is objective truth outside of me. If I like it, dislike it, love it, hate it, drop dead, stay alive, it is untouched. It is not the least changed by me. I can't do anything to alter that truth. It is a given there is one Lord, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, like it or not, let us all drop dead or stay alive. It's fixed. And so it's a glorious foundation on which the subjective preserving of the spirit of this unity can be done. It's not fragile. It's not vulnerable as though, oh my, there, may be, there might not be any foundation for unity if we go this way or that way. It is there, fixed. Now, Mike, here's my question. What in the world does all this have to do with missions? 
And I'm sure you could answer that question just as easily as I. My answer is, if there is one God, namely the Father of all who believe, if there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, born of a virgin, living in Palestine at a point in history, if there is only one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, poured out from the Son and the Father at Pentecost, if there is only one faith, faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if there is only one baptism, baptism into Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if there is only one body, the church gathered under the headship of the one Lord, Jesus Christ, if there is one then all others are invalid. And that's the need for missions. All lords are false lords but Christ. All faiths are false faiths but faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All baptismal entrances into so-called redeemed peoples are false entrances except for one in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All hopes of getting to glory saved through the one hope, Jesus Christ, is a false hope. And therefore, if we care at all about people, we will be a missionary church. And we will declare to the world, He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, save Jesus Christ's name. You might think that this text is about Christian unity, and it is. But if you think it's only about Christian unity, think again, because what created the need for chapter 4? What created the need for this stress upon unity and oneness? Answer, what we saw several weeks ago in chapter 2. Gentiles from the nations were being one to Christ. Jews were being one. They were being thrown together. Those who were far off without Christ, without the gospel, without hope, without the promises, without the covenants, were being one to Jesus. And the question was, can they get together? And the answer given was, Christ reconciled both in one body to God. Another answer was both have access in one spirit to God. 2.16, 2.18. Both were once far off. Now they have been brought new into one new man. Chapter 2, verse 15. In other words, this whole issue of unity in the book of Ephesians is created by missions. There wouldn't be any issue had not missions been doing its job, going out to all these Gentiles who had their gods, who had their religions out there, and drawing them to Christ, throwing them into one body and saying, now live together, love each other, be one as you are based on one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one body. Be that one now. Missions created the need for the stress on unity. So here's the way I, I've been thinking about this text. The oneness of God, the oneness of the Lordship of Jesus, the oneness of our faith, the oneness of baptism, the oneness of the body is the foundation in two directions. It's the foundation of unity in the church and it's the foundation of missions outside of the church. 
Because if there are many lords who can lead, if there are many saviors who can save, if there are many bodies of redeemed people on their way to glory, then there is no need for missions the way Paul understood missions. And this text is false. Let me show you another text where I feel confirmed in making the unity of the Lordship of Christ the basis of both church unity and missions. If you want to turn to it, it's Romans 10, 12 and following. In Romans 10, 12 and following, what we have is exactly the same kind of development of thought from the unity of the church based on the unity of Christ and the faith leading to missions. I'll start reading at Romans 10, 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, there's the unity of the church stressed again, just like we saw in chapter 2 of Ephesians. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentiles or anybody from any of the peoples of the world, whatever color, whatever race. Here's the reason. For the same Lord is Lord of all. There it is. One Lord, see? So it's the oneness of the Lordship of Jesus that creates the unity of Jew and Greek. There's one Lord, therefore you are one people. If there were two Lords, a Hindu Lord, a Buddhist Lord, a Confucius Lord, a tribal religion Lord, and a secular Lord, then there wouldn't have to be Jew and Greek all together in one body. You could have your own bodies all on the way to glory. There isn't. There's one Lord, one Savior, one way. And then notice what happens in the development of this thought here. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Now he's opening up to missions. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are men to call upon him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? There's missions. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So did you see you see how the... The thought flowed similar to Ephesians. No Jew and Greek. We're one in Christ. Why? There is one Lord, same Lord. What does that mean? It means missions. Because you've got to hear about this Lord in order to be a part of that saved body. Now, I want you to believe this. I'm not just wagging my tongue up here. I want you to believe this, but I want you to believe it if you believe it with your eyes open. Because it's going to cost you if you believe what I'm saying here. It's going to cost you a lot in this pluralistic society. It'll cost you if you go overseas. It'll cost you if you deal with Muslims. It'll cost you if you care about Hindus. It'll cost you if you care about Jewish people. It'll cost you if you care about Buddhists. It'll cost you if you care about tribal religions. It will cost you because what will come back in your face if you say what I'm saying is you are so arrogant. You are so ignorant. And you are so intolerant. For example, scholarly people like John Hick in Britain will say to you, the different religions are equals though they each may have different emphases. Christianity is not superior, but one partner in the quest for salvation. We are not to seek one world religion, but rather we 
Look to the day when the ecumenical spirit which has so largely transformed Christianity will increasingly affect the relations between world religions. And then he quotes the Bhagavad Gita. However man may approach me, even so do I accept them, for on all sides, whatever path they may choose is mine. If that's true, and Christ is not the way, the truth, and the life, knowing and trusting him is not the only way to heaven, and this text is false. Is it arrogant? Is it intolerant? Is it ignorant? Let me respond to those three accusations, because they will come as sure as the day is long. I hear them all the time. Anybody that says there's one way, and you happen to know it, God forbid, in your arrogance, anybody that says there, there's one way will be slaughtered in this culture with accusations of intolerance, arrogance, and ignorance. My response to the accusation of arrogance is this. If it's true, just, just hypothetically, if it's true, it isn't arrogant to believe it. It's submissive. It's submissive. If there's a rock of truth, it is arrogant to say, it's not true, it's not true. A little ant looking at the rock of Gibraltar of truth and saying, I'm humble, it's not true. What's humble is to hide under the rock. To be awed by the rock. To tremble at the thought of accusing the rock. I don't buy it. But see, you, you've got to have some real resting in God to let it hit you in the face, you are arrogant and not believe it. We're pretty weak people today. We are emotionally so vulnerable by what people say about us that we, we are prone to say, well, if that's what people say about me, that I'm intolerant, God doesn't want me to come across as intolerant, therefore I must not affirm this. Isn't that the most asinine way of establishing truth? That's the common way in America today of establishing truth. Truth in quotes. I can't come across as intolerant. People will accuse me of intolerance if I say there's only one way. Therefore, I cannot teach there's only one way. Therefore, there must not be just one way. That's the subjective way that truth is decided in our day. What about the accusation of um, intolerance? Does that hit home? You're so intolerant. If you say there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism instead of many in many religions that lead to God. My answer to that is it's not intolerant except in the way a doctor is intolerant of poison instead of medicine. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you believe that it's a bad thing for a doctor to be intolerant of prescribing poison instead of medicine, that he's intolerant of all poisons when he prescribes medicine. He's, he will not consider the possibility of prescribing poison. Anybody think that's a bad thing? That's an immoral feature of his character? Okay. Nor is it 
a bad thing or an immoral thing to be intolerant of the poisons of untrue religion that lead people to destruction and not just to physical death. To say that Jesus is the one medicine that heals us from our own hellish rebellion against God is a loving thing to say, even if it can be labeled as intolerant. No doctor will quit his job and go home wringing his hands if you accuse him of intolerant because he doesn't consider prescribing poison. And I hope you do not wring your hands and go home and say, oh, I better not prescribe Jesus as the only medicine that heals this particular disease. My last response is the question of ignorance. You are so ignorant. If you would just get out of your little teeny world, your little teeny evangelical American world, visit, visit Nepal, visit Pakistan, visit Saudi Arabia, visit the, the countries of the world, get Get something into your head. You're so ignorant when you make that limited little claim about Christianity and Jesus being the only way. Well, my response to that is, yes, I'm ignorant and you're ignorant. I'm ignorant of 10 million facts. I'm ignorant of so much more than I know. Your brains have so much more ignorance in them than knowledge in them. There are 10 million times more facts that you don't know than that you do know. We're people like a little teeny weeny boat sailing on an ocean of ignorance. Everybody, the smartest scholar with 10 degrees behind his name is like an, an ant floating on the ocean of ignorance. So, so what? My, my answer is... If you're in a woods and you want to get out and you're lost and you're hungry, you don't need to know the name of every tree. You don't need to know the name of every rock. You don't need to know the name of every bird. You don't need to know the name of every path. You need to know one thing. Is this the path that leads out? Is this the path that leads out? And it would be utter folly to say... I gotta get on every path before I get out. Yes, we're ignorant. Join the club. You'll never be anything but ignorant. What are you gonna do now? You can read 24 hours a day at 10,000 words a minute, and you'll know nothing when you get to the end of your life compared to what could be known. What are you gonna do? I was, I was really asking myself that question early this morning, about five o'clock. I don't want to be a Christian because my parents were Christians. I don't want to preach because I've got a job secure. I want to be real. I want to believe this and preach this because it's true. I want to be able to look my Hindu friends and Muslim friends and Buddhist friends and agnostic friends and Jewish friends in the face and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're, you're doomed if you don't believe. I love you, but you're wrong. And, and not doubt what I'm saying. And you know where the Lord led me? Where I go back again and again? It's not the only place to go, but it's a precious place for me to go. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6, there's this statement, especially verse 6. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What that text means is when you expose yourself through the gospel or through the reading of the Bible to the face of Jesus portrayed in the gospels and in the scriptures, when you expose yourself to the revelation there, God will say, let there be light. And there will be revealed in Jesus a glory of God that confirms to you he is the way to God. He is real. He is authentic. He's not a charlatan. He's not a megalomaniac. He's not deceived. He is real. He's true. That's the path. He came into the world to make a path out of the woods. I have found the path due to no smarts of my own. And therefore, therefore, I'm a debtor to every man. I'm a debtor to barbarians. I'm a debtor to street people. I'm a debtor to Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and atheists and tribal religionists. I'm a debtor. Paul said in Romans 1.15, I'm a debtor to every man because he has shown me the path in the woods of ignorance and has called me to follow it to glory. My prayer for us as a church is that we might in all humility believe these things and bear this sense of accountability for the nations as well as for those close to us who aren't on the path. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I praise you that you are the one God and Father who is over all of us and through all and in all who trust in Christ. I praise you, Jesus, that you are the only Lord and Savior, that there is one faith that saves faith in you, that there is one baptism that issues into the one redeemed people, the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that there is one hope, the hope of our calling through Christ by the Holy Spirit on the basis of the gospel into the glory of the age to come. I pray that we would embrace this glorious oneness and that there would rise in our hearts a sense of accountability and obligation to share salvation with the nations and with our friends, in Jesus' name, amen.